Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the First Intuition Student Podcast. This evening, we're talking all things interest. I'm Ben Bullman, and I'm joined again by my good friend, David Malthouse. Good evening, Dave. Hi there, Ben. And how has your week been? Um, I can tell you the big thing that has captured my attention this week. I've been teaching audit. Regular listeners will know I love the world of audit. And there's been a big news article this week that I've been mentioning to my classes. I'm actually going to get my class tomorrow to do a debrief on it. If you are listening to this, hopefully you have caught up on the news that a big firm of auditors, KPMG, one of the notorious big four firms, Worldwide Audit, have been fined rather a significant sum of money. We are talking in the terms of the millions. We are looking at a fine of 21 million, which here's a pub trivia fact for you, is the biggest fine ever levied on a UK audit firm. David. Wow. So what what actually happened there, Ben? Well, this is one. I don't want to go into it in loads of detail because I feel a special edition of the podcast coming on where maybe we could do it as an audit edition and use this as a breakdown. But fundamentally, it was all around the audit of the company Carillion. Dave, you will have remembered yep. or heard of Carillion from many years ago. They were a company that did construction contracts as well as outsource contracts. Lots of government contracts were outsourced to Carillion. And what seemed like overnight, this massive, massive company went bust and went bust in quite a spectacular way, owing lots of money, either money that they're taken up front for contracts or money that they owed suppliers and other people. And there was a big investigation, a big inquest into why, if their accounts had been audited, this wasn't flagged up. Now, I'm not going to go into loads of the detail now. But on review, the Financial Reporting Council, who regulate audit firms in the United Kingdom, have done a big review investigation and found that the audits of Carillion by KPMG were not up to the standards. And I'm talking about some significant failings in the audit work and the audit processes that they had put in place. So I think maybe a special edition of the podcast coming up to debrief that one. I mean, it's, it's nice that KPMG have got that title that now of biggest fine in the UK. Um, and that goes with their title of biggest global fine that an accountancy firm has received as well for something that happened in the US a, a number of years before that, which was involving some of their tax consultancy work, which, again, we could have a whole special on that one as well, Ben. But I think Carillion is probably the one that's most relevant to people's studies because it is, you know, those order issues are things that we... we in our exams have to be able to to spot the risks and be able to identify how we would attempt to mitigate those risks and it would appear that maybe some of those risks were overlooked shall we say in the Carillion audit. Definitely and it's something for people that work in audit it's fine but for the majority of our students who don't it, it is potentially a bit of an abstract concept and having a real life example that we're going to go through with my class tomorrow breaking it down will hopefully really evidence all the things that is in their folder in their study text, but showing practically how if it's not in place, there can be big consequences for the audit report, the opinion given, and ultimately the business that that audit is being done on, as we have seen. So watch this space. We will come back and do that as a future episode. The Carillion okay. special. Maybe. I'm not sure about Christmas, New Year special on, on audit. How's your week been, Dave? 
Really good. We've had ACCA exam results this week and ICAEW exam results came out at the end of last week. And I don't know, Ben, have you seen some of the, the results analysis that I looked at? I've not seen loads. I've seen a bit for our centres in East Anglia. Have you seen wider than that, Dave? Well, I, I've just looked at the results that we've received for students in Essex. And I did some analysis of the results. I did pe were people successful or not. And I also looked at um, how they got on in the mock exams that we set. So we set all of our ICW students as part of the course to set four mock exams to do. Two of them they do over the taught phase and two of them they do over the revision phase. So a total of four mock exams. Now, overall, our students in Essex did amazingly. We we beat the national average across the papers that we um, that they they sat exams for in September. But when I looked at the the mock exams, um, when I looked at students that only completed two mock exams the overall pass rate for those students was 50%. So only half of the people that passed the exam, half the people that, that did two mock exams only passed the exam. Do three mock exams, then your pass rate moves up to 86%. And people that did all four mock exams, the pass rate was 89%. So both of those last two, completing three mocks, completing four mocks are well over the national average for that exam. So first thing we see is there's a, massive correlation between the number of mock exams you do and how successful you are in the exam more mock exams means you've got a greater chance of being successful now you know when we speak to students that don't attempt exams the most common kind of reason people give is that they're not ready and they don't think they'll do particularly well so rather than do an exam or a mock that they're not ready for they decide not to do anything at all and I've, i'm sure you've heard that ben Definitely. Yeah. Procrastination. Yep. We've talked about it lots on the podcast. Now, when I looked at the actual marks, the average marks people achieved in those mock exams, okay, you actually find, and this is something I found absolutely crazy, that the people that got between 30 and 40% in the mock exam, which is kind of what most people are probably scared they're going to get, because it's a lot, quite a long way short of the, the actual pass mark in the final exam, they actually have a higher pass rate than the people that score between 60 and 70% in the same mock exams. So that there isn't this nice clear relationship between the mark you get in the mock and your actual chance of success. I can't see any real relationship. This, like, it's slightly higher in certain marks, it's slightly lower in other marks, and it jumps back up again. There isn't a clear relationship between the actual mark you achieve in your mock exams on average and how you get on the final exam. The only clear correlation that I can see is that if you do more mock exams, you're more likely to be successful in the exam. I was just amazed at how clear it was when you actually looked at that analysis. So it's something that I've been shouting at quite a lot and telling people about. Someone did spot that um, the students that achieved between 40% and 50% across their four mock exams, okay, there's a 100% pass rate for the people that managed to achieve between 40 and 50%. So someone did say to me, well, if I only did one exam and I got between 40 and 50%, then I'm 100% guaranteed to pass. It's like, well, if you can 
actually go into an exam and do exactly enough mark work to get the mark that you want between 40 and 50 percent you're obviously some kind of genius and deserve to pass anyway because i don't know anyone that could go i'm going to go in this exam and i'm going to get 37 percent exactly so the only way to improve your chance of passing if it's based on mock exams is to do more mock exams i just thought it was fascinating really great insight and something we have been anecdotally saying many many times on the podcast before we try to give students for every qualification that we teach i believe the access to four mock exams and so there we go guys the proof is in the pudding dave has got an active group of students that are tangible evidence I'm sure he's rapidly writing his thesis and paper to get it signed off now <laughs> with regards to his scientific theory. So it needs to be peer reviewed. Falls the magic number. Well, we we could ask people to do like six exams and see if that changes it. But yeah, four seems to be a pretty good number right now to get a really, really good pass rate. Fantastic. So if you're thinking about your exam coming up and maybe you're listening to this thinking your exam is in five weeks time, six weeks time, that is still plenty of time to schedule in four mock exams. Make sure you have a good go. But as Dave said, it's not about passing the mock. It's about attempting it. And it's about using that as a further learning exercise, isn't it? Looking at the model Absolutely. answers, marking it, debriefing it and thinking next time, where am I going to improve from where I currently am in the mock? And doing that series of mocks, that progression of them throughout the qualification. Absolutely. It's about the feedback that you get, whether it's feedback that you're giving yourself from the model solution, whether it's feedback from one of us, whether it's feedback from a friend that's reviewed your answer. So on to tonight's topic, we are talking all things interest. Interest comes up in near enough every exam subject. It's a common theme within the world of business, but not just for business, for you personally, Anything to do with finance, chances are you are going to have to consider something to do with interest. Dave, it was your suggested topic. I wonder if you wanted to tell me what you understand or what do you think of when I say the word interest? What is it all about? Well, first of all, it's it's something that has passed a whole almost a whole generation of people by because we've his, we've had for the last what 10 years since well more than 10 years 15 years or so we've had historically low interest rates interest rates are below one percent interest rates that most people tended to not really consider when they were you know, dealing with various different financing transactions and as we've seen recently interest rates have gone up they've increased and we're now looking at substantial interest rates higher than we've seen for, as I say, for a generation of people. And I think a lot of people need to think, how are these interest rates going to impact the businesses that we work for? How are they going to impact us personally? What do interest rate changes actually mean for us? Because we've gone through such a long time without seeing you know, any change to interest rates that's really meaningful. And when we talk about interest, you know, I think of interest is interest is the cost of money. So if I want to borrow money from someone, 
I've got to pay them some kind of return or some kind of premium to have that money advance me. And we call that interest. And interest is always quoted in percentage terms. So if my interest is at 5%, I'm borrowing money £100 from you, say, Ben. So I need to give you 5% interest. That's £5 I need to give you on top of the £100 that I need to repay. So interest is usually as a percentage. It's not just borrowing. If you actually have money and you want to deposit that money in a bank account, you could deposit that money in the bank account and the bank will are likely to pay you some kind of return. Now, you know, it might not be as good as 5%, you might get a 2% return. So if you put £100 in the bank, you might get a 2% interest added to that account every year. So just to look at that percentage in slightly more detail, I'm right in thinking that most of the time our interest rate percentages would be expressed on an annual basis. So that would be the expectation, the amount that it would cost me per year based on the amount of money that I've got outstanding. Absolutely. By by convention and in terms of kind of things like advertising law in the UK, we have to quote interest rates in annual terms so that we can compare different sources of borrowing. So there are some forms of borrowing where you may borrow money for a short period of time, but you'd still be quoted an annual rate. And then you just work out the amount that applies to your borrowing. So for something like your credit card, Ben, if you didn't pay your full balance, it may be that you had a balance outstanding for a single month, you will pay one month's worth of interest, even though the bank will publish an annual interest rate for the credit card. Fantastic. So in the news, we hear lots about interest rates and we've heard lots about them in the last 12 months because there has been this push to increase interest rates. Who decides what that percentage is, Dave? Well, this is where it gets a bit more complicated. In the UK, and other countries may differ slightly, but in the UK, we have the Bank of of England. And the Bank of England have got a committee. (laughs) That committee get together, it's about every six weeks, and they determine what the base rate or the bank rate is going to be. And at the moment in the UK, as we speak on the 18th of October 2023, the bank rate in the UK is 5.25%. And it's been going up by either a quarter of a percent or half a percent, you know, every rate changing meeting that takes place, apart from the last one where it stayed the same. So we've rapidly gone up to 5.25%. So the Bank of England set that base rate. Now, that base rate, or as I say, sometimes called a bank rate, um, is a rate of interest that the Bank of England will either charge or they will pay to commercial banks. So if HSBC have got a large surplus of funds and they don't have anything immediate to do with that large surplus of funds, they can deposit it with the Bank of England and they would receive 5.25%. If NatWest decide that they need a short-term source of finance, they can go to the Bank of England and the Bank of England, if there's no other lenders, will lend the money at a rate of 5.25%. So it's the only people that tend to see that rate are the banks when they're dealing with these kind of big surpluses or deficits um, on, on their balance sheets. But that's where the, the rate um, rate setting starts. And then based on that, we've got various other different rates that kind of we build upon. So you might have heard, Ben, in the past of something called LIBOR. 
I have. I see questions in exams referencing LIBOR. So do you know what LIBOR stands for? Now, this is this is testing the tutor, isn't it? If I was put on the spot, if this was a game show, I would say, does it stand for the London Interbank Offer Rate? In my head, it's what banks lend to each other based on. Absolutely. Absolutely right, Ben. Now, unfortunately, you've given me a very old fashioned term that no one really uses anymore. And this is another episode we could do of the First Intuition podcast is we could do an episode on the LIBOR rigging scandal that um, a number of people were prosecuted for a few years ago. So LIBOR, you're absolutely right, was the rate that one bank would charge to another if they were lending or borrowing money on a very short term basis. Now, it's not called LIBOR anymore. It's now called SONIA. So SONIA is a different type of rate. And SONIA stands for any ideas, Ben? Uh, if it's UK based, does the S stand for sterling? Yes, it does. Um, now I'm struggling. It's the sterling overnight indexed average. So they love their acronyms. So that's another rate. And that rate actually is usually slightly lower than the base rates. So at the moment, Sonia is, I think, 5.19% as we stand on the 18th of October, 2023. So banks at the end, of, banks can lend each other money on very, very short term basics. And, and that's really just to keep the, the wheels of the bank running. One bank may run a slight surplus one day. Another bank may need cash overnight. So as a result, they can transfer money relatively easily at these relatively low rates in comparison with the um, with other rates are out there. And Everything else above that is just the bank building in a margin to try and make money. So if a bank is lending you money on your mortgage, Ben, then they're going to charge you a slightly higher rate than the base rates. So effectively, they could borrow from the Bank of England at 5.25%. Then they can lend to you at 6%. And the difference, 0.75%, is their profit that they're making on that particular deal. And the amount that they charge you varies based on a number of different things. So the bank got loads of different products that will all have slightly different interest rates. And my understanding is, obviously, with a bank, I can go and borrow money from them or I can deposit my money with them. Absolutely. My understanding is the rates might vary depending whether I am borrowing or whether I am depositing. Absolutely. You you borrow money from the bank, then the bank might say, I'm going to charge you six, seven, eight percent because they want to make a margin over and above the base rates. But if you're depositing money, they still want to make money from you. So if they can get money, if they can get a return of 5.25% from the Bank of England, if you deposit £100 with them, they might pay you 3%, but then they can take your money, deposit it somewhere else and get 5.25%. So they're going to get a bigger return than they're giving you and they'll pocket the money in the middle. That's their margin. Now, we'll talk a bit more about where the rate actually comes from, how it's calculated and what factors um, underpin it in a moment. But I just wanted to mention the government in all of this. My understanding is the government now are not involved directly with the Bank of England. And therefore, you could decide to deposit your money with the government. Instead of going to the bank, you could effectively lend your money to the UK government. And that would carry a rate of interest return, Dave, as well, would it? Absolutely. So when we talk about government bonds or, or, or government borrowing, we tend to talk about something called gilts. And gilts are the government saying, we need to borrow money. Uh, they borrow money in bundles of, I think it's usually £100. So the government saying, I want to borrow £100. 
let's say it's 100 million, they'll be borrowing a million lots of 100 pounds. So you could buy, you could lend the government 100 pounds, I could lend them 300 pounds, as long as in multiples of 100, we can all lend the government money. And things like pension funds and insurance companies like this kind of deposit with the government. Now, the government don't always publish what their interest rate is going to be. What they do quite often is they actually go through a process of what we call an auction, where they will auction their bonds off. And they'll say, I would like to borrow money for £100. Ben, how much interest would you like to receive? Dave, how much interest would you like to receive? You, know, you might go to Aviva, the big insurance company, and say, how much interest would you like to receive? They collect all these bids of interest up, and then they work out what interest rate they would need to sell in order to sell all of the bonds. And that will determine the interest rate. And usually that interest rate is going to be very close to the Bank of England rates because investors will want to get a return. And if they can get a better return elsewhere, then they're not going to touch your gilts. So that gilt rate, the government borrowing rate, increases as things like base rate increases. So right now the government are going to be borrowing money based on what our current bank rate is. Now, Depending on the length of that borrowing, if it's very short term, it tends to be very, very close to base rate. If it's longer term borrowing, it's really based on what investors think interest rates are going to do in the long term. So if you look at long term government bonds and what they're auctioning for at the moment, it will give you an indication of where we think interest rates are heading into the future. Perfect. So let's let's break down some of the factors that can determine the interest rate that we are offered by the bank. Obviously, the starting point is the base rate and yep. what the bank themselves are being able to access money for. But as you've alluded to, the banks will then increase the rate if they are lending us money because they want to make a return. And there are some features of the lending that means the rate will change dependent on what some of the conditions or terms are of the loan. So you've used the term term, but when we're talking about loans, I think when you talk about term, you are talking about the length of the borrowing. Am I borrowing this money for a month and having to repay it this time next month? Am I borrowing it for a year or am I borrowing it for 10 years? Absolutely. So term is all about the length of the borrowing. And the idea is that if you're lending someone money and they're not repaying you for 20 years, there's a greater risk that something's going to happen in that 20 year period that means you're not going to get all of your money back. So as a result, you want to charge them a higher rate of interest to compensate them for that term risk. Whereas if I'm a bank lending another bank money and I'm lending it today and I'm going to get it all back tomorrow, I'm less concerned that something's going to happen over that 24 hour period. So as a result, I'm happy to charge a slightly lower rate of interest, which is why Sonia tends to be a lower rate of interest than you would get on, say, your mortgage, where you're waiting 20 years to get the money back. So the golden rule you've just told us there is, Dave, the shorter the length of the loan term, the lower the rate of interest would be, all other things being equal. Yep. So we would expect a longer loan to have a higher interest rate than a shorter loan. Yeah. Now, I discuss this in class quite often with a group, and they all look at me as if I've got something wrong. Because the standard question I get from students, and I'm going to ask you now is, yeah, but Dave, surely that's wrong because 
I've got a credit card, which is due for repayment next month. And I've got a mortgage that's due for repayment over the next 20 years. And my bank are charging me more on my credit card than they are on my mortgage. Why is that the case? Well, the one of the big reasons for it is that with your mortgage, your mortgage is secured against the value of your property. So if you don't pay your mortgage, then the bank can foreclose on your property. They can take your property. They can sell it to raise enough money to repay the mortgage. So there's security that's being held as an asset against the borrowing. With a credit card, there is no such thing. So if you just went to Tesco's and you bought £100 worth of goods from Tesco's on your credit card, you take them home, you eat them over the next couple of days, Tesco can't come and repossess the goods that you've just purchased, sell them in order to make enough money to pay off the, the, the credit card. So credit card is unsecured debt and you're, you're paying a premium because it's unsecured. You're also paying a premium for the convenience. You're also paying a premium for the fact that you can use that credit anywhere and it's on demand. So you would almost certainly, Ben, if you decided that you're going to spend £500 this month and you could spend £500 on a credit card, you could get a much, much lower rate of interest if you took a short-term loan £500 out from the bank. But you'd have that £500 walking around with it, spending it as and when you need it. So for the convenience of being able to use a card, tapping it all over the place, not having to carry change around with you, only using the money when you need it, you pay a premium in the form of interest if you don't pay your credit card when it becomes due in full. That opens up a whole discussion then around the ability to secure the borrowing you've got. You've given the great example of a mortgage. So my house, me and my wife bought a house, but we did it via the loan from the bank, the mortgage, and that is secured on our property. Exactly right. If we want to sell the house, we have got to repay the mortgage. We can't keep the proceeds without settling the debt. Likewise, if we don't pay our mortgage installments, the bank have got the right to come and say, we're going to force you now to sell the asset. And it's exactly the same for companies, isn't it, Dave? When we're looking at a company's balance sheet, mm -hmm. we might look at the potential interest expense they will incur based on the amount of assets they've got to pledge for security. Absolutely. Companies will borrow money in the same way that you or I do. They will have borrowing that's secured on assets so they can have mortgages in the same way you and i can so they may have a head office and they've raised finance or borrow money in order to purchase that head office and um, banks can also have something called a floating charge now i don't know if you've come across floating charges before ben um i'm not not personally but i have seen them in exam questions before <laughs> and what do you understand a floating charge to be so my understanding is a, a fixed charge like a mortgage is on my house or a factory. Or some people might have done this with a car. You buy a car on some finance arrangement. It is secured on the car. We'll have all maybe seen can't pay and they'll take it away. The bailiff programs on the telly. And when the bailiffs turn up, they will check for a vehicle. And if it's got finance on it, they will say we can't claim that because technically in default, it belongs to somebody else. Now, my understanding of a floating charge is it is not on a specific asset. It is on the more general assets of the business. So, for example, if I was a shop, I will have money tied up in stock. 
The bank won't say, if I am Tesco's, we want security on those aisle of beans. Mm -hmm. They will say, you will always have a level of stock if you are a trading business, and we want a charge on your stock. So at the point we need to call in the loan, we could force you to pay us back from the inventory. Is, is, is that the right? Absolutely. It's it's a charge over a group of assets that could fluctuate and change over time. And usually, what if you borrow money... You could say, I am Tesco's and I've got 20 million pounds worth of inventory in the stores in the, in Essex. Um, I'd like to borrow 10 million pounds. There's clearly enough asset there to cover the value of that borrowing. The bank may lend it to me. And then what the bank will usually say is there are a set of rules or what we call covenants that mean if I breach any of those covenants, and one of them could be about the amount of sales I make every week. And if I don't hit my sales targets, then the bank have got the right to be able to come in to seize goods to the value of my borrowing to sell them to repay the debt. So it just gives the bank the, the ability to be able to collect assets to the value of, of the borrowing if something goes wrong with the business. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about was risk. If anybody listening has ever gone to apply for a loan or a credit card, they will have presumably gone through some form of check. My understanding is that credit check is a way for the lender to determine your risk profile. How would that impact on the interest rate they would then charge the borrower? So if you're deemed to be a more risky borrower, the bank are going to charge you a higher interest rate. So if you have got a history of defaulting and not paying your debts, uh, if you've got um, a history of not paying bills, um, if you don't have a history and you've not ever had anything on credit ever in your life, you may not have much of a credit history. And as a result, the rates will be higher. So what banks really want is people with very good credit ratings, with very good credit history, people that have had credit, they've maybe borrowed money, they've had a credit card, they have bills in their name, and they've paid those bills on time and that's what the bank are looking for someone that's got a track record of paying their debts on time if you've got a really good credit record then the banks will charge you a relatively low interest rate if you're credit impaired and you've got a history of not paying then interest rates are going to be substantially higher and it's the same for businesses as well now i don't know ben do you um, i'm not going to ask anything personal here other than have you ever checked your own credit record to be honest i haven't I think I've had some of those spammy looking emails that say people can check it for you, but I've always just deleted those as soon as I've got them. So, so no, I've clearly been through credit checks because I have borrowed money in the past, but I've never done a credit check on myself. How easy is it to do one? It's really easy. I've got the Experian app on my phone and I can at any point in time use the Experian app to check my current credit rating. It will tell me what borrowing they know I have in terms of my mortgage, any credit cards, any loans, anything like that. Any um, issues with my credit history are on there. Um, and it enables me to see what my credit rating currently looks like. And it will show any changes that are made to your credit rating over time. I, I would advise people to actually look at their credit rating. It may be the case that you don't want to borrow money and you don't need to borrow money. That's absolutely fine. It's always worth knowing your credit rating just in case. Sometimes your credit rating can be impacted by the house that you live in, 
if you live in a house where previous owners of that property had poor credit, then it may be the case that that credit is actually having an impact or that poor credit rating is having an impact on your own credit rating. So by checking it, you can then question it and get it cleaned up. It might be you have a low credit rating because you've never had credit. And it might be something you actually think, well, how can I build my credit rating when I do need to take out a mortgage or something like that? There are some brilliant articles all about credit ratings on the Money Saving Expert website. So if you take a look there, Martin Lewis goes through details about how you can improve your credit rating without borrowing money from loan sharks to help improve it. Brilliant tip. I'm going to do it tonight and go and find out my credit rating. Another thing I hear students talking about, and it's a ratio that comes up a lot in different units, is something called gearing. And I get a little bit frustrated with students because I think they're okay calculating gearing because they've learned a ratio in a textbook. But I always get a sense that students don't really understand what gearing actually means. And more importantly, what impact it might have on a company or a business's ability to borrow money and the rate they might be charged for it. So I don't know if you just quickly wanted to give us the Dave Malthouse view on gearing and how that can affect our interest expense. Gearing is all about how your business is funded. So if your business requires £20 million to fund its operations, you can get that £20 million either through borrowing it from a lender, borrowing it from a bank, or you could get the money from your shareholders in the form of, in the form of equity. Now, if you borrow it from your shareholders, then they will demand a return in the form of dividends or capital growth, but you don't have to pay them that dividend. So you don't have to pay them. If you don't have the earnings, you can't legally pay them the, that dividend. So although you're getting the money from those shareholders, there's no legal obligation to pay them a return every year. If you get the money from, from a borrower, you get the money from the bank, usually the bank don't demand as much of a return as shareholders do, but they do demand that return every single year. And if they don't get their interest every year, then you run the risk that they're going to try and close you down to recover the value of their debt. So gearing is an indication of financial risk. The more debt you've got, the more likely it is that the bank could come in and shut you down if you can't pay your debts off. But if you have very low levels of debts, then it's only shareholders that fund you and they can demand some very high returns you know, from the investment that they've made. So you've kind of got a payoff between those two things. The shareholders that you can put on ice for a bit, but long term want a big return versus the debt holders that don't want quite as much of the pie, but they want to be guaranteed that pie every single year. Brilliant. Final thing I think I wanted to talk about at this stage was, well, what happens if you yourself haven't got the security or you are deemed too high risk? This is where we laugh about the bank of mum and dad, but it's where we can get a guarantee from somebody else. So my understanding is that's also the potential for companies and businesses that can borrow with somebody external guaranteeing the debt that they are borrowing. Absolutely. So if you if you run a business, you own a business, you can put a personal guarantee down where you're effectively guaranteeing your own personal assets against the liability of the business that you work for. As you said, bank of mum and dad might be your parents um, put up 
collateral against any borrowing that you have maybe to help you buy a property so there are other people can step in and act as a guarantor which means that you are more likely to be given the credit and maybe at a slightly more preferential rate because someone else has stepped forward to give security against your borrowing great real good insight into interest rates but we've been teaching this for many many years and as you said at the start of this evening's episode, it's actually got much more relevant to most people in the last 12 or 18 months as interest rates have gone up. So I wondered quickly, feels like we're on news night now, if you could give us some of the potential reasons that we're currently in the position that the Bank of England have decided at their six weekly meetings in recent months to put the interest rate up and up and up. Bank of, England, Bank of England have got one target that they need to hit. And that target is all around controlling inflation. And over the last 18 months, two years, inflation in the UK has risen to a level that's considered too high. And in order to reduce that inflation, the Bank of England have got one thing that they can do. And that thing is to adjust interest rates. So to combat inflation, they've decided that they're going to increase interest rates. Now, the, the theory behind that is that for you, Ben, if you're currently a mortgage holder and you're on a, a variable rate mortgage that varies with the base rates, if the interest rate goes up, it means you pay more on your mortgage every month. That means that you've got less disposable income to spend. And so as a result, you can't buy as many things. It reduces demand for products. And as a result, it should help to cool off inflation. If fewer people have got the money to buy stuff, then the price has to come down to, to attract people to come and buy them. And then the other side of it is if you're a saver and you're depositing money in a bank account, you're getting a bigger return. You're more likely to keep your money in savings rather than go and spend it if you're getting four or five percent a year in terms of interest that's being paid to you. So that's the idea is that this increase of interest rates will make it more challenging for people to buy stuff, which means there'll be fewer things they're buying, which will bring prices down and help to cool down inflation. So we've obviously seen the interest rates go up and up and up. And we have heard, actually, it was on the news last night that for the first time in a while, inflation is coming down slightly. It's still relatively high, though. How how long are we looking potentially between this link between interest rates going up and the cost of the goods we are buying settling back down, reducing inflation? One of the, the challenges is that, it, that there is a lag from the interest rate changing to it actually having the desired impact on people's disposable income. And one of the reasons for that is that fixed rate mortgages have become very popular. So I personally have a fixed rate mortgage. I fixed the rate of my mortgage four and a half years ago. So I paid exactly the same mortgage repayment every single month for the last four and a half years. I'm going to continue to pay exactly the same mortgage um, mortgage repayment every single month until March next year. March next year, my mortgage deal ends and then I'll be on another mortgage deal, which will be at a much, much higher rate. So in March next year, I'm suddenly going to have less disposable income. And lots of people are in the same situation where a change in interest rates doesn't hit them right away. 
it hits them a little bit further down the road. So there is a kind of a delay from interest rates changing to people generally feeling it. I think more and more people are feeling that interest rate change because we have more and more people over the last few uh, last year or so reach the end of a fixed rate mortgage that are now suddenly paying much, much more in their mortgage repayments than they were before. And maybe we'll come back in a moment to some of the impacts on individuals, but let's approach it first of all from a work, business, or even an exam perspective when we're asked to think about the real world effect of a raise in interest rates on a company. What does it mean for your average business if interest rates, as they have done recently, have gone up? What are some of the impact and effects that we will be seeing? The first one, and this is for every single business that is borrowing money, regardless of who you are. One of the key metrics of risk that I know you and I look at, Ben, is we look at interest cover. So right, if a year ago a company was paying, say, 1% interest, and this year they're paying 4% interest, then their interest charge will have increased by four times. They've got four times as much interest this year than they had last year. So if we put that into numbers, and if a business last year made £10 million worth of profit and had £1 million worth of interest, that's interest cover of 10 times. I can pay my interest 10 times with my £10 million worth of profit. But this year, interest now at 4%, I'm now paying four million pounds worth of interest on the same profit of 10 million pounds. That means my interest cover now becomes two and a half times. I can only pay my interest two and a half times with the profit that I've made. So I've gone from a comfortable position of being able to pay my interest 10 times over with the earnings that I've made to now only two and a half times. And the business hasn't changed. Nothing has changed in my business. I'm still selling the same stuff, still got the same cost structure, still got the same staff there. The only thing that's changed is the interest on the money that I've borrowed to fund my business. So overnight, every time that rate changes, businesses that have got a variable rate, variable rate borrowing, their interest rate cover is falling every time that interest rate goes up. And it might be that investors look at that and get more concerned because suddenly there's a greater risk that there's not going to be enough money left over after paying the interest to pay the shareholders a nice dividend. So that's number one, which I know is a ratio you love. But then also, if a business wants to grow, and I, I, I've decided I want to invest in a new product, or I want to invest in new machinery, or I want to buy new vehicles, then all of those are going to be impacted by how much it costs me to raise the funds in order to buy the new vehicle or to invest in the new product. So investment appraisal, things like net present value calculations, my cost of capital is going up because the cost of borrowing goes up, which means a project that might have been super viable a year ago now becomes unviable because it doesn't generate value for the business with a higher rate of interest. So businesses may well be turning down investments that two years ago would be attractive, but now are no longer attractive. And that's probably my biggest concern with interest rates is that it means businesses are not going to be doing all those cool new things that they may have done a few years ago when interest rates were much lower. What do we think businesses do about that? How can they manage this interest rate risk that they're exposed to? Because you've just said some really practical things that means a raise in interest rates is potentially very bad news for the business. There's loads of cool stuff you can do, Ben. 
So one thing that I've seen, um, I've seen lots of football clubs do recently is they've converted debt into equity and they've actually changed the structure of their balance sheet. So the the, the debt has been changed. So the, the debt's been changed into equity. So you're now a shareholder rather than someone that is entitled to interest. So you, you can do financial engineering like that. Um, things that I would look at more practical are, is your interest rate fixed? So at the point that you decide to to invest in a new business idea, have you borrowed money at a fixed rate of interest? Because if you've matched the borrowing and the fixed of the rate of the borrowing to the length of the product, length of the project, then that means when the project ends, the debt's repaid and all of your forecasts are based on that fixed rate of interest that you agreed to. So I think fixing interest rates is a really powerful thing you can do. If you don't have a fixed rate of interest, but you want them, then th there are financial transactions you can enter into called swap agreements, where you effectively agree to swap your variable rate in exchange for a fixed rate. And you could do that with the banks, you could do it with other businesses. So you can get fixed rates if it's something that you want to do. There are also some really cool things like futures and options and things like that, which I think we need an entire other podcast to look at. But um, they're, they're really clever financial um, instruments that we can use to try and protect against interest rate changes. The problem right now, Ben, is that interest rates are where they are and any new borrowing is going to be based on today's rates. So we can't magic half a percent up from two years ago you're stuck with the rates that you've got right now and it's just do you want to fix them or are you happy to allow the rates to change over time and maybe pay more in the future i think there's two things that are related but are slightly different objectives for the business i think initially people think businesses like us as individuals want to borrow money as low a rate as possible and you would be right. And obviously a, a rate rise means it's going to cost you more. But another factor which is subtly different is the ability to be able to plan with an element of certainty. And that's something I see a lot in the exam syllabuses now, Dave, thinking about yeah. how the businesses deal with uncertain times. Who knows what the Bank of England are going to do with the base rate by this time next year? And this is your choice, isn't it? If you are looking to take out a mortgage today, You've got a decision. Do I fix it? Which means I fix it and run the risk that the interest rate might actually start coming down if they've tackled inflation. And I'm now locked into a high rate. But on the flip side, I run the risk that interest rates go up and up and up. And I end up paying a lot more this time next year than I would have done if I'd fixed. Now, I know banks build in an element of what they expect to happen within that fixed rate. But um, I think certainty is something that people undervalue or miss the point of sometimes when they are looking at it from a business perspective. If I know for certain I can budget, I can plan, just like you've mentioned with your mortgage, you've known for the last however many years since you fixed your rate how much you need to budget in your family's finances <laughs> to pay your mortgage every month. I agree. I agree. Certainty is something that's really valuable. It's also something, if we think about a company and if, you, if you're the finance director of a business, Ben, you're making decisions that should be in the best interest of shareholders. You should be doing the things that shareholders want you to do. Now, if you're making a decision about your borrowing and you're saying, well, I think the interest rates might fall and I want to benefit from that fall in interest rates, but you're also exposing yourself to the risk in case they go up. 
you're effectively gambling on interest rates changing. Now, are your shareholders going to be happy that that's what you've decided to do with their money? As a shareholder, I would rather you fix the interest rate so I know with certainty what I'm going to be, what the company's going to be spending, and then take that money and do the things that I want you to do. I want you to carry out the trade that I invested in. I want you to invest in that trade. I don't want you to speculate on interest rates. So I think it's a really good argument to say that investors would be happy with certainty, even if it means in the short term paying a little bit more than you would having the uncertainty of variable rates. Personally, that's what I would choose. You know, if I'm when I'm renegotiating more my mortgage, I'm looking at maybe I'll pay half a percent more, but to fix it for five years and guarantee the payments that I'm making every month, that makes me sleep a lot easier every night than worrying about what the bank in England are going to do every time they've got one of their meetings. Another term we hear people talk about is protection. I wonder if you wanted to just give us a quick overview of what protection might mean with regards to the interest rate and the interest costs we will suffer. Well, I, I would always look at that protection in terms of what are you protecting yourself against? And we've talked a little bit about protecting ourselves from interest rates going up and fixing the rate that we may have in terms of our mortgage rates. But don't forget about savers. If you're saving money and you're depositing money in order to get a return, you're exposed to exactly the same risks, but the other way around. So if I've put £100 in a bank account and currently the bank's given me 3% return, if interest rates fall, I'm going to get less money next year, less money the year after. But there are certain things I can do to protect myself against those rate changes. Like I can deposit money in a fixed rate account. Well, the money will be tied up for a period of time, but I'm guaranteed to get the amount of interest that they state right now. So I can protect myself against those falls of interest rates by locking the money up in those kind of accounts. Brilliant. Well, I'm looking at the clock and we are near enough on time. Really pleased that we've covered business perspective. Lots of that stuff is very relevant to the exams. You've talked about some key ratios, your ability to understand the link between the balance sheet and the profit and loss account of a business and the amount of interest or the rate of interest they might be paying. We've also some, done some stuff that's personal. I really like the tip about going to check out your own personal credit rating. We've thought about some decisions you might have to make if you're looking to borrow money or deposit money in the future. And we've really had a good overview of where interest rates come from. Dave, is there anything you'd like to end with for this evening? I think we've covered all the things that I wanted to. You know, the, the only thing that you know, I would want to add, really, is that no one knows where interest rates are going. You know, interest rates went up like a rocket. They've come down like a rocket coming down, if that's even an analogy, in the past. No one knows from one month to another where they're going. People speculate about where they think interest rates are going to do, going to go. So I, I wouldn't ever try and make a decision based on a best guess of where interest rates might settle. Base any decision you're making based on the information that you have today and always seek advice. There's lots of people out there that are qualified to give really good advice on financing, whether it's business financing, whether it's personal financing. I would seek help with a qualified financial advisor before I make any decisions about how I'm going to be raising or borrowing money to make sure that you're making the right decision for you and for your circumstances. 
Thank you everyone for listening to the FI podcast with your hosts, Ben and Dave. As always, you can head over to the show notes where you can find the links and resources spoken about in today's episode. Please remember to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a rating and a review.